Uh, I would tell the kids to go downstairs, but they already did, so that's covered. Um, this is going to be my very first sermon ever. So, I did actually attend a seminary at one point, but while my friends there were doing MDivs and so taking classes on, like, how to, to interpret the Bible and how to preach a sermon, I was studying philosophy. In fact, my roommates like to call me the pagan philosopher. So, if this, uh, <laughs> if this doesn't go well, at least I have an excuse. Um, so, uh, here's a, a sort of a weird quirk of human psychology that a bunch of people have noticed. In fact, you've probably noticed it yourself. Human beings often need to be reminded to be grateful for the greatest benefits that we enjoy in life. You can see this by reflecting on just what those benefits are. I'm in the camp which says that those benefits are not always the things that we get the most excited about. More often, they're the sorts of things that make life worth living even when it's not so exciting, even when it is, in fact, very difficult. These are, I mean, famously things like friends and family and just being alive in the first place. But it usually takes some occasion like Thanksgiving rolling around to get us to like pause and reflect on how good those things are and how good it is that we have them. I think that something similar is true for the greatest benefits that we enjoy as people who are in some sense rightly related to God. Our text for this morning, Psalm 25, has a lot to say about the person who is rightly related to God. It refers to that person in various ways, as the one who hopes in God, the one whose trust is in God, the one who fears the Lord, and the one who keeps the terms of God's covenant. And I think that the psalm does a really good job of highlighting some of the benefits that accrue to a person in virtue of being related to God in that way. So what I'd like to do is to see if this psalm can help us not only by reminding us to be grateful for those things, but maybe even by deepening our appreciation for them. Okay, so I see three main benefits of being rightly related to God highlighted in this psalm. And the first of those benefits is this, deliverance from suffering. Deliverance from suffering. The psalm is actually bookended with petitions for deliverance from suffering. So starting right at verse 1, the psalmist says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. So the psalmist seems to feel that there's some kind of a threat that he's facing, that he's at risk of being put to shame by his enemies in some way, and he's asking God to deliver him from this threat. And the same theme is picked up near the end of the psalm, starting at around verse 16, where we read this, "'Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied.'" 
Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. So it sounds like the psalmist is in kind of a tough spot. He's talking about anguish and affliction and enemies and troubles of the heart, and he's asking God, deliver me from this. But not only do we have in this psalm petitions for deliverance from suffering, there are also indications that that petition will be answered for the person who is rightly related to God. So, for example, right after the psalmist says in verse 2, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me, he goes on to say immediately in verse 3 that no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Or consider verses 12 and 13. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. Or verse 15, my eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release me from the snare. So what we have here, I think, are some specific ways in which God will deliver the person who is rightly related uh, to God from suffering and hardship of certain sorts. But I take it that these specific examples are meant to be illustrative of a broader point. I think that the psalmist here is using them to paint a broader picture, a picture on which things ultimately go well for the person who is rightly related to God. Now, in one sense, that's a very easy benefit for us to appreciate. After all, who doesn't want things to ultimately go well for them? Who doesn't want to be delivered from suffering and hardship? But I think there's also an important barrier to our appreciation of this benefit that we sometimes wrestle with, and quite reasonably so, and it's that sometimes it's hard to believe that we actually have it. After all, look around. This room is full of people who are, in the relevant sense, rightly related to God people whose hope is in God, people whose trust is in God. And yet, don't we all continue to suffer? Some of us occasionally, some of us continually. Don't we all occasionally experience shame? Don't many of us not live our lives in prosperity? You might think that just by looking around, the psalmist's claims are empirically falsified. What's going on here? Well, I want to suggest that it would be a mistake to read the psalmist as claiming that as soon as someone begins to be rightly related to God, they are thereby immediately delivered from all suffering and hardship thereon after. I think it would be a mistake to read the psalmist that way. I think that what the psalmist has in mind here is, is not so much immediate deliverance from suffering, but something more like eventual and ultimate deliverance from suffering. I'll tell you why I think that's the right way to read him. 
There are a few reasons, and the first is this. If it's obvious to us just by looking around that people who are rightly related to God are not thereby immediately delivered from all suffering and hardship thereon after, then presumably that would also have been obvious to the psalmist. And so it would be strange for the psalmist to then write something contrary to that. Similarly, if it's obvious to us that people who are rightly related to God are not immediately delivered from all suffering, then, of course, God knows that. And so, presumably, God would not inspire the psalmist to claim something contrary to that. I think that by itself is a pretty strong reason to think that maybe if we're reading this psalm as saying, oh, you'll be immediately delivered from suffering, that we're not getting it right. Here's another reason to think that. The psalmist is talking about being rightly related to God, and being rightly related to God, I think, is not something that's done all at once in a moment. It's something that's done over a period of time, and maybe even over an entire lifetime. Consider, for example, uh, putting one's trust in God. Trust in God is not just a matter of having a certain sort of mental attitude towards God, which is something that can happen at a particular instant. It's also a matter of how you act and ultimately of how you live your life. So that's something that's done over an extended period of time. Similarly, keeping the terms of God's covenant is something that's done over an extended period of time and maybe even over an entire lifetime. So while it might be the case that some of the benefits that come with being rightly related to God would be received immediately, it maybe shouldn't be all that surprising to find that some of those benefits are not received immediately, that some of them are, uh, you might say, delayed, that they're, they, they have to be waited for, we have to be patient for them, and that we might not receive them for a long time, maybe not even in this lifetime. I think that's another reason to suspect that what the psalmist is up to here is, is talking about not immediate deliverance from suffering, but eventual and ultimate deliverance from suffering. And here's another reason to think that. This one I got from a friend of mine. I thought this was a really excellent point. We have to keep in mind that the psalmist is an ancient Israelite. And as an ancient Israelite, one of the things that would be at the forefront of his mind when he's thinking theologically is the Exodus, how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the Promised Land. But one notorious feature of that story is that God didn't take his people straight from Egypt into the Promised Land. In between, there was 40 years of just wandering in the desert. And so, for the psalmist, it would have been a familiar idea that the benefits which God promises to his people might be benefits that one has to be patient for, has to wait for, for a long time. And I think that we have to take seriously that the psalmist may have had that in mind when he wrote, for example, in verse 13, that the one who fears the Lord will spend his days in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. All right, well, suppose that's right, that the psalmist is thinking here of 
in, uh, eventual and ultimate deliverance from suffering rather than immediate deliverance from suffering. I think that this is actually super important for helping us to see how best to appreciate this benefit of being rightly related to God. Because once we see the, this benefit is, lies primarily in the future, then we can see that the right way to appreciate it is by anticipating it, by looking forward to it, and by using it maybe to put our present sufferings in context. One of the suffering, uh, forms of suffering that I've had to deal with in my life is mental illness. This is notoriously a rampant problem for graduate students, and it comes in lots of forms. Anxiety, depression, OCD, and I mean real anxiety, real depression, real OCD, not the way that those terms are often thrown around in casual conversation. These kinds of mental illness are bad in all sorts of ways. One thing that's bad about them is that they involve painful mental states, like painful emotions. Anxiety and depression are painful in something like the way that heartbreak is a painful emotion. But they're not just painful, they also have enormous power to interfere with your life and make it difficult to enjoy things that should be enjoyable and just to do ordinary daily tasks. And beyond even that, they're not just painful and interfering. I think one of the things that's so bad about them is that they're not truth-tracking. Take, for example, anxiety. A person who suffers from anxiety is often in a position to know, and in some part of their brain they do know, that their anxieties are irrational. But that doesn't bring an end to that emotion. It doesn't end the suffering that is associated with anxiety. And that's one of the things that I think is worst about it. Now, I get professional help with mental illness. And when I first started getting professional help with this, I had this experience that I soon learned was actually very common. It was this overwhelming sense of hope that I was suddenly overcome with when I had this realization that this sort of thing there are ways of dealing with this. I don't have to live with this. We have tools that can help to heal mental illness. And that was just so encouraging. And it occurs to me that if just ordinary human methods for healing illness and dealing with suffering can have that amount of an encouraging effect in the midst of present suffering, then surely the hope that God will ultimately liberate us from all of our suffering has even more power to encourage us in the midst of present suffering. I take it that something like that thought is what the Apostle Paul has in mind in that famous passage from Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. All right, that's benefit number one, deliverance from suffering. Here's benefit number two, deliverance from blindness. Deliverance from blindness. What I mean by blindness is blindness to the truth. 
God delivers us from blindness by guiding us in the truth. We can see this theme in Psalm 25. Consider, for example, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says there, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. There we have a petition for deliverance from from blindness. The, The psalmist is asking God to guide him. But again, we also have indications in the psalm that this petition will be answered for the person who is rightly related to God. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Or verse 12, who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. This is a huge, huge benefit. Have you ever just stopped and thought about how cool it is that we have God as a teacher, as a mentor? I guarantee you can't find a better one. So the primary way in which God teaches us today is through the Bible, through Scripture. The Bible, we believe, is God's word to us. And it's through the Bible that God communicates to us important truths about who God is and how we are to live in light of who God is. And with that realization, I think there's an important point here about how best to appreciate this benefit of being guided in the truth by God. Since the Bible is such an important tool that God uses to guide us. Since it's so central to this, uh, it seems like it might be a good idea to read it. One, One way of appreciating a benefit is to use it and to use it well. And when it comes to the Bible, that means reading the Bible. But it also means, I think, more than just reading the Bible. This past summer, Mercy House University held a Bible study. We worked through a Bible study that was written by one of our own members here. And uh, one of the participants in that Bible study at one point along the way made an observation that I thought was excellent and has stuck with me. He talked about how he had been recently sort of realizing that you can do more than just read the Bible. You can actually study it. And that studying the Bible is more than reading it. It's something above and beyond that. Well, what exactly is studying the Bible? What does that consist in? Well, there are various things, but for example, it means not just reading through a passage, but actually wrestling with it. Thinking about what it says, what the implications of that are for you, for other people that you know, thinking about what God might be trying to say to you through that text, and so forth. And I think it means that when you have a hard time 
with a text. When you're not sure what it says, or you have uh, questions about how what it says fits with other things that you think you know about the world or that seem true about the world, I think studying the Bible means being willing to actually engage with those questions and wrestle with them and try to figure them out. And sometimes I think that the best way to do that might mean that you actually should draw on outside resources. Sometimes. There are tons of resources that are meant to help us understand what God is teaching in the Bible. Resources like the footnotes in study Bibles, or commentaries, or works of theology. And I think sometimes it's a good idea to draw on those resources to help us with our study of God's Word. Now, you might have this worry. You might think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Studying the Bible is a spiritual project. I'm making it sound like it's an intellectual project. What's the deal with that? I think that there's something right about that thought, and there's something wrong about it. What's right about it is that studying Scripture is a spiritual project. That's totally correct. And I'm going to say something more about that in a minute. But what's wrong about that thought is the thought that studying Scripture is not an intellectual project. Studying Scripture is both a spiritual and an intellectual project. And if you're skeptical about the intellectual side of that, um, I've got a thought for you to chew on. It's a thought that's been expressed before me by other people, but it deserves to be expressed again. Do you remember... In Matthew chapter 22, what Jesus said when he was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he said? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Have you ever thought about what it means to love the Lord your God with all your mind? If you haven't, I want to encourage you to meditate on that, maybe in your devotional time this week. Spend some time thinking about that and just ask, what would it look like for me to love the the Lord my God with all my mind? Now, when it comes to studying Scripture, um, I want to, before moving on from that point, because I think it's so important, I want to give you a couple of tips that I've found helpful, and maybe you'll find them helpful as well. One of them is this. When you get to the point where you're like, I'm having a hard time with a passage. I don't understand it, or I don't understand how it fits with, you know, other things that seem true about the world. Here's something to keep in mind. Christianity is 2,000 years old. And through that 2,000 years, there have been a lot of people wrestling with the very same texts, thinking about the very same things, and trying to answer the very same questions. So I just want you to remember that you have a wealth of resources that you can draw on when you encounter difficulties like this and challenges with studying Scripture. Another thing that I want to encourage you to do is Don't limit yourself 
when you get to the point where you're thinking, I, I need help, I need to draw on these resources for, uh, you know, to help my understand what God is saying here, um, don't limit yourself to only resources that you're likely to agree with. Let me tell you why I'm saying this, or at least illustrate why I'm saying this. So I'm a philosopher, and a lot of my work as a philosopher is actually about God. I like to think about puzzles about God, arguments for the existence of God, stuff like that. And you know what? My work in philosophy, including my work specifically about God, has benefited enormously from learning from atheists. My main philosophical mentors have all been atheists. And I have benefited more from their training than from what I learned when I was at seminary. And I think the reason why is something like this. When I was at seminary, I was primarily surrounded by people who agreed with me about important theological issues. People who had a similar way of putting together all the pieces into what's called a worldview. Taking all of their experiences and the information that came their way and painting a sort of picture of like, okay, this is the way the world seems to be. But when I started to learn from and engage with these atheist mentors that I, that I have, who have been such a huge benefit to me, it was useful to, to just engage with somebody who had a, just a totally different way of putting together all of the, their experiences and the information that comes their way, a different way of looking at the world. One thing that that does is it helps you to see the way that you are looking at the world. It helps you to notice, like, oh, yeah, I didn't even realize I was thinking about things like that. Sometimes that results in you revising the way that you think about the world. Sometimes it reinforces the way that you've been thinking about it because you realize that actually there are really good reasons for thinking in the way that I have been, but I just didn't know that before because I hadn't actually stopped to reflect on it. I do not want us as the Church of Christ to miss out on all the value that can be had by engaging with people who disagree with us, even on the most fundamental and important theological points. So I just want to encourage you, don't shy away from engaging with people and other resources that you're likely to disagree with. Okay, one more tip for studying Scripture. This is going back to the point earlier about Scripture being both a spiritual and an intellectual project. Um, on the one hand, there are some of us who maybe struggle with the intellectual side of the project and not with the spiritual side. On the other hand, there are some of us, and I think I'm probably one of these, who struggle more with the spiritual side of the project than the intellectual side. And Robert, when I was preparing the sermon, Robert made a really excellent point. He, he drew my attention to something in this text that I had completely missed, uh, but it's, I think, fantastic, and so I want to highlight it for you. Um, the way that this text talks about God guiding us in the truth is highly interpersonal. The language of guiding and instructing and teaching calls to mind a relationship between like a teacher and a student, or a mentor and a student. This is an interpersonal sort of thing. 
So we should not think of the Bible as just like this repository of data that God has left for us to find and use. It's a tool that mediates a personal relationship. It's a tool through which God actually speaks to us uh, and and, uh, exhorts us and teaches us and so on. And so I think that maybe the right way to approach studying the Bible so as not to miss out on this component of the project, the spiritual side of Bible study, is to make sure that our study of the Bible is accompanied by, includes things like prayer, uh, meditation on the text, and just listening to hear what God might have to say to us through this text. All right, well, that's benefit number two. Deliverance from blindness, the flip side of which is guidance in the truth. Here's benefit number three. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from sin. There are various places in Psalm 25 where the psalmist asks God to forgive his sins. So, for example, verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Or verse 11, For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Verse 18, Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. So we have here, again, petitions. The psalmist is asking God to deliver him from sin, to forgive his sins. And from our location in history, we are in a position to know that God has, in fact, answered this petition for those who are rightly related to God. Because we are recipients of the gospel. We know that God has forgiven our sins, and moreover, that God has gone to great lengths to do so. God the Son became a human being and died to atone for our sin. Now, I think that at Mercy House, we do a really good job of appreciating this benefit. We talk about it all the time. We take communion every week to remember it. Uh, the gospel is emphasized here big time. But I think that maybe Psalm 25 can help us to deepen our appreciation of this benefit even for further. And in particular, I think verse 18 is really helpful here. This is the verse I just read. It's the verse where the psalmist says, take away all my sins. But what I want to draw your attention to about this verse is the way that it's positioned in the rest of the psalm. Notice that before the psalmist says, take away all the sins, what is he talking about? He's talking about all his sufferings and asking God to deliver him from them. He's talking about being afflicted, troubles of the heart multiplying, anguish and distress, and then almost in passing, oh, and take away all my sins. And then after he says that, he goes right back to the suffering. He talks about how he's got all these enemies that are after him. And he asks God to deliver him from those enemies. 
What's interesting about this to me is the way that the request for deliverance from sin is being treated as though it's on a par with these other requests for deliverance from all kinds of suffering and hardship. That suggests that sin and being a sinner is really bad. Bad in the, in, on the same level as like suffering and hardship of all these sorts is bad. And I don't mean just bad because of its consequences. Sin certainly has bad consequences. It has bad consequences for victims of sin. It also has bad consequences for the sinner, some of those just natural consequences, some of them consequences imposed by God. But forget about the consequences for a minute. Set that aside. It's intrinsically bad to be a sinner. And in fact, it's so intrinsically bad to be a sinner that I think it's actually far and away worse than any of the sorts of suffering that the psalmist is describing or alluding to here. Now, that may not be obvious, but I think that I can help you to see that it's true using what philosophers call a thought experiment. A thought experiment is just where you imagine a certain scenario, could be a real-life scenario, it might just be a hypothetical scenario, sometimes they're very bizarre, and you reflect on it to see if it reveals anything about the way the world is or the way the world seems to be. This thought experiment is one that other people have used. I'm going to kind of give my own version of it, but I didn't invent it. And the idea that it is meant to bring out is at least as old as the ancient philosopher Plato. But here it is. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine a situation where one person wrongs another person. Okay? It could be a real-life case or it could be a fictional case. doesn't matter. But don't make it a case that you were personally involved in. Make it some other case, some case you weren't personally. Maybe something you heard about on the news, uh, maybe some famous incident from history, or just something made up, okay? So think of a case like this. Get that in your mind, a case of one person wronging another person, harming them in some way. Now suppose that you were faced with the following unfortunate choice. You have to be one of those people. You've got to choose one. You've got to either be the person wronged or the person who does the wronging. You've got to either be the victim or the perpetrator. Which would you choose? I can tell you that for my part, I would choose to be the victim every single time. It's not good to be a victim. And I don't want to downplay the, the suffering and often horrible suffering of victims of wrongdoing. But if I had the choice, I would rather suffer horribly than be the one responsible for inflicting that horrible suffering on someone. Now, if you have the same intuition that I do about that case, then maybe that helps you to see just how bad it is to be a wrongdoer, to be a sinner. It's so bad that it's worse than corresponding forms of suffering. Something that's not always obvious to us, but uh, which, when you reflect on cases like that, seems like, yeah, actually, that seems right. 
Now, why am I belaboring this point about how bad it is to be a sinner? Well, because the worse it is to be a sinner, the greater a benefit it is to be liberated from sin, to be forgiven for your sin. Of all the benefits that Psalm 25 highlights for us of being rightly related to God, this one towers above the rest. It is the greatest of them. And that's what I would love for us to be able to see this morning. Now, I think that Jesus knew about that quirk of human psychology that we often need to be reminded to be grateful for the greatest benefits that we enjoy. Because Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as this regular ritual for us to participate in, to get us to regularly stop and pause in our lives and remember what Christ has done for us on the cross, that he's taken away our sins, forgiven us, pardoned us. This, uh, this ritual, the Lord's Supper, is described uh, very succinctly, unusually succinctly for the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Oops. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are about to take the Lord's Supper again, just as we do every week. But this time, when you take the bread and the cup, and you, you pause and you think about what Christ has done for you, and you thank Christ for the gospel and for dying for your sins, I want you to also reflect on the enormity of that, on just how great a good that it is. All right, let's pray, shall we? Lord God, thank you. Thank you so much for delivering us from suffering, from blindness, and from sin. Help us to remember these benefits this Thanksgiving as we're reflecting on the goods that we enjoy in life. But also, I pray that you will help us to remember them as we go forward after Thanksgiving through the rest of our lives when the holiday is over and things return to normal. Keep these things in our heart, God. Keep us grateful. Amen.